Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Blaschenberg. I'm your host of Yoga Birth Babies. And typically we do community birth stories, but today we're doing a community postpartum story. We often talk about what the birth is like, but we don't shed enough light on life after baby. It can be a big change for most of us. It's a new identity that many of us have as a parent, maybe leaving behind a job or a different identity. It can be really rewarding. It can also be a time of struggle. It can be a time that you have to learn to trust yourself. So to have this conversation, I reached out to Melissa McLeod. She's been one of our community members since the beginning of April. And then about six months ago, she had her baby. So she's been part of our community for quite a while. And we just had that really honest and candid discussion I think you're going to like. Before we get to that, let me just tell you a little bit about Melissa. She is an actor and data analyst living in New York City with her husband, also an actor, and a six-month-old baby who is just delicious. Those cheeks are something I want to nibble on. She's recently received her MFA in classical acting from the Shakespeare Theater Company's Academy for Classical Acting at George Washington University, and she's appeared on stage with regional theaters up and down the East Coast. Before we get to that conversation, I just want to remind everyone that we have a free downloadable. It is called the five simple solutions to the most common pregnancy pains. To get this, head over to our website, prenatalyogacenter.com and just fill out the the pop-up that comes as soon as you get to our homepage. You'll sign up for our newsletter, you'll get the downloadable, and then every week you'll get a little tidbit, a little bit of news about what's going on at the studio. You'll hear about what the latest podcast is and our different offerings online. So check that out. Also, so we have all of our online stuff going on. And then we also have this whole world of supporting the yoga teacher. So if you are a yoga teacher that wants to take a deep dive into prenatal, we got you covered. Check out our 85-hour teacher training. And if you're a yoga teacher that you don't want to take that deep dive, but you do want to know how to support your pregnant students, check out our self-paced online course called Who's Afraid the Pregnant Yogi. We have so many online online offerings. And then the last thing I want to say before we head to that conversation with Melissa is a big thank you and honoring of gratitude. Our online community is growing and thriving. I don't think there's a lot of great things that have come out of COVID, but I would say we have expanded our community all around the world, not just around our country, all around the world, different countries. And it's amazing that we come together meeting in class. Sometimes it's our live classes. Sometimes it's our re-releases and we're showing up to support one another. We're listening to the, the issues people come to class with. We're hearing and we're supporting one another. Last week in class, we actually had Sophie, her water had broken right before class. And throughout class, everyone is just having these amazing good vibes for her as she moved through the practice. And as we said goodbye, I knew that next time I saw her, next time I heard from her, she would have her baby. And everyone in class was so excited and wanting to support her. So we've created this abundance, this community that keeps showing up, 
to support one another. And what could be better than feeling heard and supported and held? So thank you for those that continue to come to class, whether it's the live classes or the re-releases. I'm just in deep gratitude that you have joined our community. Okay, enough of me. Let's take a super quick break. When we come back, please enjoy my conversation with Melissa. Hi, Melissa. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well, and I'm so excited to talk with you. I know we've been taking class with each other since, I don't know, since we went online sometime in March. Is that right? I actually think... I started doing the online classes right after my husband and I recovered from COVID. So this would have been in early April. Okay. But yeah, like early, early on. Ooh, this is fun. And it was, it was really a joy to be with you throughout your pregnancy and, and your postpartum. I, I appreciate that you're, you're a committed regular. Thank you. <laughs> so I wanted to reach out and talk about postpartum. All of that. I know you and I had talked a little before about life. You were an actor. You got pregnant. There's COVID. The struggles of being a parent. And I just, I like to kind of pull that curtain back because I think sometimes we get this image of parenthood and it's nice to kind of get a realistic, I guess, touch point from someone going through it right now and how it's going. So thank you for letting me (laughs) pin you down and have a conversation. Oh, my pleasure. I, I find sometimes talking about my own experience helps me actually see it more clearly and make sense of it and remember things to be like, oh, I think I said this thing that was actually kind of smart. I should try to do that. <laughs> well, let's start with learning a little bit about you. So I am an actor. Uh, I have a survival job in the financial sector. I've been working. I'd started temping um, in the financial sector when I first moved to New York and I, I like numbers. And so what started as a temp job led to, you know, some permanent jobs. And so now I have this wonderful arrangement with a family office where uh, I'm a data analyst for them. And um, when I'm in the city, I can come into the office. Well, pre-COVID times, I could go into the office. Um, If I had auditions, I was free to go to them as needed. And then if I booked work out of town, I would go do the job out of town and I could work remotely. So I've been doing remote work for five or six years. Um, at this point, uh, it's been a wonderful arrangement. My husband is also an actor and an acting teacher. Um, and we welcomed our first child, a little girl. Uh, it will be six months ago tomorrow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, we live in New York city. Um, trying to think what else might be good bio info that would be helpful for your listeners. I think that's good. And then also, as you and I were just talking that you just got your MFA. And so you're a serious actor. You know, that's going to be an interesting conversation about how that impacts parenthood. Because as we're saying, it's not, they don't go hand in hand so well. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the things my husband and I struggled with uh, when we were thinking about becoming pregnant and then when we found out we were pregnant and now that we have a child we were looking around at our peers trying to find other couples where both parents were artists and were raising a child. And we, we didn't know a lot. Uh, we knew a lot of parents where one person was an artist and the other had a, a stable job, which I guess technically in our relationship, I, I'm the one who has an office job, but the other couples we knew that person who had the office job, they weren't an artist. So they were always doing that office job. They were never, you know, out of town on a gig. 
Um, and my husband and I, he tends to work more in film and TV. So when he, he rarely needs to go out of town for work. And when he does, it's a matter of a couple days uh, because I work mostly in theater. When I go out of town, um, I tend to travel farther and I tend to be out of town for you know, six weeks at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, and the work uh, is not just when you actually book a job, but there's lots of work when you're auditioning and then you need to get new headshots. So um, that means that you need to be picking out your outfits and you need to be researching photographers. Uh, you know, your agent tells you, hey, uh, I need you to, to look more like this or I need, you know, my n- name, Melissa McLeod. I better be able to walk into an audition room and do a spot on Irish accent or a Scottish accent. So there's all kinds of work that occupies your time when you're not on a specific show or TV show or film. So in the, in the easiest of times, you are busy enough uh, trying to do your work as an actor, plus the work of your survival job, which for me is working in finance and is for my husband, it's coaching other actors and teaching acting And so trying to figure out how we would manage all that with a child, um, we didn't have a lot of other people that we could look to and say, okay, that's how they're doing it. That's how they're doing it. So one of the things we've been doing is actively trying to find more, more families like that, um, and, and talk to them and they, and the ones that we've met, um, they've all kind of said the same thing, which is you figure it out, which is, I think the advice that parents everywhere are getting, you know, artists, not artists, you, you figure it out. And, and that's kind of how we've been doing it. Um, we knew that we wanted to raise a family and we started uh, trying to get pregnant not too long after we got married and we were trying for a while and it wasn't really working. And then I, I had a strong desire to go get my master's. So I did a one year um, MFA program down in Washington, D.C. Uh, to get my master's in classical acting. Uh, so we were living apart during that year. He was based in New York and I was based in D.C. And then when I graduated, I came back to New York and we started trying again. But based on our previous success rate, we were like, well, it'll take a while. I've got plenty of time to reintroduce myself to the industry, to establish my credentials now as an actor of Shakespeare, which I had wanted to be for a very long time. And then three months after I graduated, we found out we were pregnant. And that's uh, going to throw a wrench in things. <laughs> oh, yes. I had actually, I had booked a job right after I graduated. And um, my husband had booked the same job. It was a play. It was a beautiful new play. We were so excited to do it. And it would have uh, been running in the month and a half, two months before I was set to give birth. So I called the owner of the theater and explained the situation and she was, she, she, we both worked at this theater before, so she knows us personally and she was very excited for us, but she said, well, we'll have to get another actor because it's, it would be very inappropriate for your character to be pregnant. And I started kind of looking and reading more about what is the theater world doing about pregnant actors and about families and the good news is, is the theater world is really struggling with this and asking itself questions about how can we be more helpful to families. And there are theaters that are hiring pregnant actresses, even though the role does not specify or require that the character is pregnant. And they're saying to their audiences, look, 
um, the characters not pregnant are actresses. The same part of your imagination that you use to pretend that you're really, you know, in this mythical town called Brigadoon or that this young girl named Juliet is actually killing herself uh, on stage. We ask that you use that part of your imagination to imagine that this actress is not pregnant. Uh, so I knew that that was happening in, in some theaters around the country, but the more I read about it, the more I found that what they were, they were doing that with actors who had already worked for them Mm -hmm. and that they already had an established relationship with. I couldn't find any examples of theaters hiring an actor that was new to them who was pregnant. So I had lost this job that was and anytime as an actor, when you lose a gig, it's heart wrenching to lose it because you're pregnant felt especially hard. But then I started auditioning again and trying to be, you know, um, honest and in the interest of full disclosure, if I made it to the callback round, which is, you know, you have your initial audition and if they like you and they want to see more, they bring you in again, that's called a callback. So if I made it to the callback round, I would usually take a moment after I had uh, done the work to say, just FYI, I'm pregnant. Um, here's where my pregnancy would fall within your project. I'm, I'm feeling fine. I don't, we're not having any complications. So this should not be, it's not an issue for me. And the, the couple times that I did that, I felt the air in the room change. Mm-hmm. And I, you never really know why you lose a job or why you book a job, but I wondered in those instances if my telling them that I was pregnant, I don't know that it cost me the job, but I think they stopped considering me. Um, And then I got an audition uh, for a theater that I had worked with before down in North Carolina uh, where my family is based. And uh, it was a play that I was really excited about. Uh, It's a theater I loved working at. Uh, It was a female director, all these wonderful things. Uh, and I really, really, really wanted this job. So I went in and I didn't tell them I was pregnant, but the casting director. So this is the woman who, uh, she, the theater comes to her and says, we're looking for actors. Uh, here's the show we're doing. Can you, can you go hunt for actors and decide which ones we should see and then call them in? And the casting director says, sure. And she goes through her files or she puts word out and says, I'm looking for actors for these roles. If you're interested, let me know. So uh, I knew her. She's actually how I met my husband. She brought me into audition for him when he was directing a production of Macbeth. And so she knows my husband and I personally. And so she knew that I was pregnant. But I came in for the first audition and uh, I'm wearing uh, it's a dress that takes place or a, a dress. It's a show that takes place during World War Two. So I'm wearing a period dress and I've tied it in such a way where there's a nice big bow over my slowly expanding belly. Um <laughs> And I, I had worked so hard. And so I just, I did what I thought was like a really, really good audition. And at the end they said, thank you so much. I said, thank you. And I left the room. I didn't say anything. Uh, and then I got a call back and same thing. I came in, I did my work and I left the room and I never said anything about being pregnant. And I have no idea this time if the casting director has told them whether I'm pregnant or not. A few days later, I get an email from the artistic director saying, uh, we'd love to hire you again. We're so excited to work with you again. We'd love to offer you this role. Uh, let me know if you have any questions. And I, I had, you know, a moment of celebration and then I went, Oh God, 
if I tell them, am I going to lose this job? Uh, so I text her, the artistic director, and I said, hi, I'm so excited to accept. Thank you so much. I just have a quick question when you have a moment trying to make it sound, you know, not an emergency. And she texts back. She goes, oh, sorry. Uh, I, I'm getting my daughter ready for her show right now. If you want to tell me that you're pregnant, that's okay. We already know. It's not a problem. The playwright's going to add in a few lines for your character to indicate the pregnancy. We're so excited for you and your husband. Talk soon. And it was it was the best response I could have hoped for. Uh, so the show was supposed to happen. Uh, I think I would have wrapped the show about a month before I was set to give birth. So I would have been visibly pregnant. But then, uh, but then COVID happened and the theater early on, they decided, well, we're going to postpone the show. We're going to see how this virus plays out. So then instead of doing this show while I'm pregnant, then the plan was, well, I'd be doing the show. I'd be starting rehearsals when I was, I think, six weeks postpartum. But then the pandemic got worse. And so the theater said, never mind, we are going to cancel our season, but we're going to pick up the whole season and just do it next year. So in theory, uh, I will be doing this show. I think I'll be starting rehearsals a couple days after my daughter's first birthday. So it's kind of followed you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And I'm, I'm so grateful, um, that this theater was, was willing to follow, was willing to keep me on board, um, you know, do, no matter what stage of pregnancy or postpartum I was in and, um, I, not for nothing. I think it's partly because the artistic director is a woman and a mom and the director's a woman. I don't know if the director is married or if she has kids, but I, I do think there's something about having women running the helm that makes hiring a pregnant actress or hiring an actress who's, you know, the mom of a small child, not, it, they, it just didn't ever seem like it was that challenging. Them. Yeah. Well, not scary. I want to talk about, so I can understand, remember the first time someone introduced me as a yoga teacher and not an actor. Cause before the studio, I was a performer. I did musical theater and that was my identity for years. That's how I really, you know, I went to school for it. It was something I was so proud of. I worked so hard for. And then one day somebody introduced me as their yoga teacher and there was, um, like a knife in my heart. That's yes. like, like, like a punch in the belly. I'm like, Oh, you don't know this whole other side of me. Yes. And, and it was an identity change. How are you feeling or how are you taking this new identity as a mother? Because there will be times that you may lose that on a job or may not be able to take a job because now you have these responsibilities as well as it's a different identity and it's a different focus. It's not just the craft anymore of being an actor. It's a whole new focus. How, how's that landing for you? You know, honestly, I, I think that this shift has not, it has not been forced upon me yet. I think it's coming in part because I think it's very easy for artists, actors specifically, because your identity can be so tied into saying I'm an actor that when you are not working on a job, you feel like, well, I don't know that I can call myself an actor. I'm not working at the moment. And so your identity as an actor is is such a, a tender thing. If you're working, it's great. You're definitely an actor. If it's a dry spell and you haven't booked anything, you feel like you're not an actor. 
And it can be especially hard when you see the world happening around you and you see your friends on Facebook booking gigs and, oh, there's that job I really wanted. I didn't book it, but I know the person who did. Oh, I'm happy for her, but I wanted the job. Well, the industry has paused. So none of the actors that I know, there are a few, you know, Zoom readings here or there, a couple of film and TV shows are, are shooting, but not a lot. So I feel like I've been given this space to say, don't worry, you're still an actor. Luckily, you you know you have a job coming up, but the acting world has paused. Just be a mom right now. And I'm I'm trying to embrace that and go, all right, I, I know that I'm always an actor, so I don't have to tend to that part of my identity. I can invest fully in being a mom. Talk to me a year from now where, you know, I've done the job that I had booked and it's over, but it's now much harder for me to go to auditions. Uh, maybe I'm, I don't have work booked and I see everybody around me living their actor lives. I imagine that it will be much, much harder then. The good news that I'm, I'm kind of holding on to is some of the actor parents that I've spoken to said, well, every actor parent that I've spoken to has said that being a parent made their acting better and not just the quality of their work when they've actually booked a job, but it's made their auditioning better. Uh, they say, you know, if you're going to an audition, you're squeezing that audition in between, you know, picking up the kid from school and taking them to soccer practice, or you've had to hire a sitter to watch the kid while you go to this audition. So you get in and get out. You don't have time to sit and chat and take 10 minutes in the waiting room and get really nervous. You're there to do a job and you're just super clear about it because you have somewhere else to be afterwards. You've got other responsibilities. And so I'm, I'm hoping that that will happen to me and and that having this additional uh, responsibility, while it may complicate certain parts of being an actor, it will also, how do I say, uh, what am I trying to say? I think it will also help me focus and get in, get out and get a little less precious with, um, with the audition world yeah. and a, a little less precious about being an you artist. You don't have time to be nervous. I remember the, when I was in the city, I moved there when I was 22. Oh, so many moons baby. ago. I was a baby and it was the third audition I had ever been on in the city and it happened to fall on a Jewish holiday. I went in for the morning, well, like the eve of. So I went in for the morning open call and then I got a call back, but the call back abutted right to where I needed to meet a friend to drive me out to New Jersey for the holidays to start. And I was so concerned about getting the, getting the dance audition part done that I didn't have time to be nervous. I just was like, I got to get, I got to do it. I got to do it. I got to do it. I booked it. And I'm convinced, I'm convinced it's because I didn't have time to freak out. I think had I had time to freak out, (laughs) like I wouldn't have gotten it. I was just so focused on I got to get this done. I got to get uptown. I got to get in someone's car and go. So caring (laughs) as much is, is really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So do do you mind if I ask what it was for? Oh, it was a tour of carousel. (gasps) Yeah. It was lovely. It was lovely. Oh, it was beautiful. I was, I'm saying June is busting out all over for six months. It was fantastic. (laughs) 
It was absolutely Even wonderful. in December, June was busting out all over. <laughs> so, okay, I want, I love talking to Shaw, but I want to pull this back to, so the postpartum. So thank you for sharing about that struggle because I think a lot of people, whether they're an actor or whether they have, um, you know, like they're a lawyer, there's still an identity they had pre-pregnancy, pre-child, and it can be a struggle to figure out how to keep those two lives working together. So let's, I want to talk a little bit about how did you prepare in your mind for postpartum? Well, I am a researcher. Uh, I think that's partly what helps me be a good data analyst. I know it's one of my strengths as, as an actor and it's true as a human being. So I, I read books, I took classes. Um, I took several classes through the, uh, through your studio. I took, hey. uh, the baby care and feeding. I took the breastfeeding course. I think I took the partner yoga and massage course. Um, I think those are the three I took. I, you know, was watching videos on YouTube, uh, cause we had signed up to take, uh, some classes through the hospital, but they canceled all their classes because of COVID. But, uh, I was asking parent friends, what books did you find useful? Uh, I remember the first book I got was the happiest baby on the block. And my husband and I, we would go to bed at nine o'clock, but then we would sit in bed for 30 or 45 minutes and we would take turns reading the book to each other so that we could both be, you know, reading and learning. And so I think I, I got as much intellectual information as I could being aware that the actual experience of it would be difficult. Um, but I'm, I'm the kind of person who I prepare for the worst and I figure as much information as I can have, the more prepared I can be. So I just tried to arm myself with as much knowledge as I could. And I tried to arm my husband with as much knowledge as I could. Uh, and again, I think, I don't know if this is a, a man woman thing or if it's a, a you know, partner carrying the child partner supporting the person carrying the child. But sometimes I felt like I was have to nag my husband a little bit like, honey, we haven't read that book in a while. We should read that again. Or we said we wanted to learn about this. There's a YouTube video. Why don't we check it out tonight? Um, but yeah, I think that's, that's, I just, I just read and researched a ton. So, Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to know, did that research and prep for postpartum land and help you when you're actually living the first few months as a parent? We'll be right back. All right, so you read the books, you watched the videos, you were prepared, and then how did the reality of being a parent match what you had learned? I think there's, I I think this is true for all parents. There's what your brain knows. And then there's what your heart knows. So when your child is crying because they're in week five and it's that witching hour, your brain goes, they are, they are healthy. They are you know, they're not in danger. You have fed them. Their diaper is clean. They're comfortable temperature wise. This is just what babies do. So my brain was feeding me that information, but 
Meanwhile, my emotional life was, you know, because the hormones are still rocking around inside your body. My emotional life was all over the place. And as someone who, who thinks that they can really prepare themselves by reading, having a child is very humbling. You hear the phrase, there is no, where's the user manual for this child? And there is none. As much reading as and preparation as you can do, there will be, there are no answers for some things. Or you have to try six or seven different things until you find something that works. And that was very frustrating for me to feel like I had done everything I was supposed to. I had, I had done all the reading. I was, you know, doing these best practices, quote unquote, of parenting, and my child was still crying or my child still wouldn't sleep and, 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 and. And to, it took, it took a while for me to kind of give over to that. Um, I remember this, this, I had an interesting, uh, second and third month postpartum, uh, brief little sidebar. My husband's brother, uh, had MS and was going to go down to this treatment center in Mexico, uh, to do uh, a stem cell treatment and he needed to have a caretaker. Well, because my husband had had COVID already and had the antibodies, he was the only one of my uh, brother-in-law's family who could go with him and be his caretaker. So my husband, uh, I and my husband and the baby, we drove down to North Carolina when I was six weeks postpartum and my husband dropped us off uh, at my parents' house. Uh, He was there with us for a few days and then he uh, had to go be with his brother in Mexico and was going to be with him for four weeks. So for the second half of my maternity leave, it was me and the baby at home with my parents. And How that, that? <laughs> I'm so grateful that that option was available to us. I can't imagine if I had to stay, you know, cooped up alone for those six weeks. And then there were challenges, right? Like I, my parents come from a different generation. Um, they didn't, when my parents were raising my brother and I, you put the kid to sleep on their tummy. Uh, sleep training wasn't a thing. There weren't the advances in, in child psychology that we have now. And so some of the things that I was doing, they, they questioned. And as a new parent, anytime somebody questions what you're, even if they're asking from a general point of, uh, genuine point of curiosity, it can feel like they're questioning your ability or like they're attacking you. So that was challenging enough. And then I remember at one point I was trying to get my daughter to sleep and it it wasn't working and I just, I needed to step away. So she was in, she was in the crib crying back in the room. I was staying at my parents are in the living room and my parents said, well, you know, why doesn't she just come out here and be with us? Like she could be calm. It would be fine. And I was like, no, she needs like, this is, she needs to this is bedtime. This is not playtime. I know it's hard for her, but this is what she needs to do. And I remember my mom said something. She said, honey, sometimes there aren't answers in the books for things like this. I know you, you like to do your research, but that's not always going to give you the answers. And again, it felt like an attack, which it wasn't. Uh, and it, I think was also hurtful because I was like this, it, I, I knew it was true in a way. And it just was so, I was so despondent 
because this was something I couldn't solve. I like numbers. I like formulas. I can, if, if the numbers don't add up, you go back through and you can find a way you find where the error is, you fix it and it all makes sense. And babies just aren't like that. And that's, that's been, I think the hardest lesson that I am learning every day. I think it's a big lesson. And I'm, as you're speaking about this, I'm like, Oh, I'm so glad you're saying that because I think it's so relatable in prenatal recently. This has come up last maybe two weeks, almost every class. We've been talking a lot about people saying like, I'm very type A. I like to control things. I'm very anxious that I'm not going to have control over the birth. And my response is like, right. And then you're not going to have control over the baby. So I'm so. <laughs> Glad you're bringing this up because it is so relatable that so many people, I'm going to put myself very much in this category. We like to know, we like control and I'm, I'm there with you. I'm a researcher. I, I mean, down to like what kind of toys to get, like hours, hours on this type of thing. And then when birth happens and when your baby's there, it's an act of surrendering. It's a, it's a strong pill to swallow of there's only so much control we have. And do we even have that? So thank you for being so honest because it's just something I think so many of us face. So how'd you get to the other side of that? I don't know that I am on the other side of it. Well, what Um, happened when your mom said it's not in a book and you know, like what happened that night? Oh, I I think I cried. Um, (laughs) Yay. Yay for crying. (laughs) I feel feel like most, most stories about, and how did that end for you? The first time you experienced that as a parent will usually end with, well, I think I cried. Um, (laughs) And, you know, it it was, uh, once you get out of an experience, you know, you can look back on it and be a little clearer about, oh, okay, this is what was happening. This is where my intentions were good, but where I made a mistake, here's what I was doing that was right, that was just, you know, it was the right thing, but the wrong time. So how did I, I kept, I I honestly think I'll be very honest about this, which is, uh, I'm embarrassed to talk about this, but I think I uh, made a lot of mistakes that during those six weeks down at my parents' house, um, I was trying to, I was really exhausted, even though my, my parents were there, my, my dad was trying to sell his mom's house and get the house, I mean, get the house ready to sell. So he was gone most days over at the house, cleaning things up. So he wasn't, um, he wasn't around during the day. My mom was working a lot during the day, uh, working from home. And at night, my husband's not there to help shoulder the burden of waking up, changing diapers, feeding, So even though I had support, I felt incredibly alone and I was very underslept and I was so stressed. And all I could think about was my maternity leave is going to end. I'm going to have to go back to work and nothing else in my life situation will be different at that point, which was false. I've got to figure out a way to sleep train this child now. So when my daughter was two months old, I was like, all right, I, I need to sleep train her. And I know that there are people for whom that works, uh, and they've done it successfully. It did not work for me. I did not do it successfully. And, and that's, I don't think she was ready for it. And I think I did it poorly and it was a painful experience for both of us. And she rightfully so she came to like dread 
going into that bedroom and she came to dread the nighttime because I was, she knew that she was going to be put in a crib and just was going to be alone crying in this strange room in the dark for hours and that nobody was going to come help her. And at the time I really thought I was like, but I've, I've done the reading and she needs to learn how to self-soothe. There were a number of other things that I should have done to help ease that transition, uh, that I, I just neglected to do. I was tired. I didn't know any better. I didn't have my partner to bounce ideas off of. My parents didn't know about sleep training. So they were, I think, gently trying to push back from a position of, well, we didn't do this and you turned out okay. And I think it made me cling to my righteous indignation. Well, they don't know anything about it. This is, I've done the reading. This is, this is what is best for us right now. And so I just, I was stubborn like a mule. And when my husband came back and we all got back to the city, I was able to talk to him about it. And we instituted a lot of changes and things got better immediately. And I'm happy to report that my daughter sleeps well now. I hope there's no lasting trauma, but it was a, it was a really hard time. And it was very humbling as somebody who prides herself on doing the research, doing the homework, and then being able to solve a problem if it arises to have done the research and the reading and then to have failed so spectacularly in a way that at the time I felt like might have really hurt my child. It was, it was the worst. And I still have a lot of guilt about it. Having said that, she's happy and healthy and she sleeps great now. And she laughs all the time. Uh, not today. She started teething today, (laughs) but she, before today, she laughed all the time. So I think what it's taught me is that they're still young enough that most of the mistakes I will make as a parent, I can rectify and there will be no lasting damage. Um, so I think I'm easier on myself now, both in terms of, I think I forgive myself more readily, but I also think that I've learned to give all the reading and all the research that I've done. Let there be some air, let there be some breath, let there be some room for, you know, not going by the rules or maybe improvise a little bit on this thing. Um, to be a little easier with everybody, with my child, with my partner, with myself. I think that is amazing. You got to the other side and realized that and letting go of the books. And so I can say you learned to trust yourself as a parent. Yes, I, I, I think so. Um, we're, we're actually having a weird week where I think that that's been put to the test again at the beginning of the week, I was suffering um, a bad clogged duct and my daughter got very constipated. So all of a sudden now she's not napping anymore. She's only napping for like 36 minutes at the to- at a time and she's super tired and I'm in a lot of pain. And then my clogged duct starts to get better. Uh, she finally like passes whatever it was that had had her so constipated And I was like, all right, good. I identified that thing. I knew what it was. Things are going to get better. Well, things aren't getting better immediately. And I couldn't figure out why. And then I I pumped for the first time in a long time. And like, I got two ounces out of each breast, whereas I could normally get five or six. And I went, oh, she's hungry. She's not getting enough food. So at the next feeding, we gave her a bottle. And uh, because I, you know, I had a 
good stash built up and she downed that bottle. Oh, and then I felt so bad. My baby was hungry, but we figured it out and we solved it. And so I thought, okay, we've solved it. Now things are going to get better. And then today she woke up and she was fussy. And I was like, well, I know she's getting enough food at this point. What is happening? And I thought, I bet she's teething because the crankiness was different. And so I kind of put my finger in her mouth and I was feeling around and I felt her first little tooth start to cut. So I think a lot of trusting yourself as a parent, they can't tell you, oh, yes, this is it. Thank you for identifying the problem, mom. You have to guess and you take your best stab at it and you work on that path a little while. If that doesn't yield anything, you you work with the information you have. You're like, all right, maybe this is it. And even when you do identify the problem correctly, circumstances change. So it's there is no point of stasis I have found. Um, I was telling my husband earlier, watching my daughter try to sit, it's not like she finds her balance and then she's done, right? And now she can play with her toys and everything is good. She's always refinding that balance. She turns to pick up a toy and her balance changes and she's got to find it again. I think it's the same thing with parents. You you conquer one problem and then something else pops up. And so you're constantly, you're constantly finding your balance. Some things get easier and new things will pop up. That, that doesn't change. My kids are six and nine. And when we're like, yep, we got it. We're doing it. And then something changes and you're like, got to figure it out again. I don't think that ever changes. I think I just burst your bubble. I think it's always finding that balance because they're growing their circumstances, their knowledge or, or constantly is changing and we need to change with it and acknowledge boundaries and give space. I think that's, I think that's a lifelong lesson as a parent and you've learned it early. <laughs> Good well, <for> you. <laughs> I, I, I sound like I've learned it. <laughs> we'll see when the next <laughs> new thing pops up, but it's always going to be something to that throws you for a loop that you're going to take a break, take a beat and be like, okay. And, and make mistakes and then and then figure it out. And then when you think you have it, there's something else to conquer. Yeah. What's been the most rewarding part of being a parent so far? Um, a couple of things. I, I like it more than I thought I would. Um, I think I always thought, well, I'll love my child, but I don't know that I'll like parenting. And I actually do like it. And, uh, and I've had other people watch me parent and they say, you're a really good mom. And that, of course, just, you know, the sun comes out, the hallelujah chorus starts playing. <laughs> um, and then the other thing that I just love, I did musical theater when I was younger, uh, but I was much more of a dancer than a singer. I've never been confident about my singing voice. Uh, I, I hate singing in public. My daughter adores my singing. I'm sure she does. I mean, she doesn't know any better, right? Like, it's not like she's heard Maria Callas a whole lot. She has nothing to compare me to. But singing for her, she loves watching me do ballet. And I I feel like I want to put that on my resume. They'll be like, well, do you have any experience in this? I'll be like, no, but my daughter thinks I'm brilliant at it. That should count. Um, just and and watching uh, watching her face light up. Uh, when my husband does something silly, watch my, watching my husband parent her, um, just, I didn't, I, I, I don't know what I thought it would be, but I didn't expect to enjoy it this much. That's delightful. I love that. 
One thing I hear a lot of parents talk about is the sense of isolation. You kind of touched on that when you were saying you were at your parents' house, but your husband wasn't there and you were shouldering a lot. And now we're heading into winter in this part of our world and it's cold and, and there's also a pandemic. Um, how are you, how are you handling the isolation? This is a, a little thing that has actually made a huge difference. Um, now that, uh, my daughter can be awake for longer stretches of time, we, um, it's much easier for us to fit in a walk. Mm. Uh, in between, you know, feedings and, and diapers and playtime inside. And it makes a huge difference for her. When she gets out and gets some fresh air, she's a happier baby. She sleeps better. Um, and especially since mom and dad have limited opportunities to exercise, the walk is just so good for the whole family. The added benefit, um, as so, I, I've lived in North Carolina, uh, in the South and I've lived in New York City. And I don't think it's that people in New York City are colder than people down south. But I think that in New York City, space is such a premium uh, that we want to give everybody their space. We don't want to infringe on other people's space. And that manifests by when you're out and about and you pass someone, you don't know what kind of day they're having. They may be deep in thought. They may be listening to the music. So you don't want to bust into their space sometimes by saying, hi, have a good day, or even by offering a smile, making eye contact. You don't want to invade their space. But having a baby walking around with what I, if I may say, is an exceptionally cute baby, <laughs> people, people are, they look at you and they're like, they smile. A lot of people compliment, they're like, oh, that's an adorable child. And the number of random brief uh, interactions I've had with perfect strangers on the street has been so glorious. Um there's something about babies that just brings out the loveliest, most generous parts of people. And, uh, you know, sometimes you see other, I ran into another mom who was carrying her child, who's only like a month older than my daughter. And we just had, you know, a three minute conversation on the street and it was great. And I lived off that three minute conversation for the rest of the day. And it's especially given everything that's going on in this country right now, there's a lot I think that can make you depressed or get down, but having these, these little interactions with people that you don't know, and then wishing someone well, wishing someone happy new year and knowing you may never see them again, it is so uplifting. And it's something that I hope I can continue to practice, uh, once the pandemic is over and, you know, once my child is older and I'm not wearing her. Mm-hmm. That's great. I love that. I remember those little interactions. And I will say it's, I liked living in New York for that because one of the things I used to do with my kids, I would feel, I'd feel overwhelmed and lonely many times in the afternoon. I had morning activities or I worked or something. And then like a three or four o'clock and there were still a couple hours until the whole dinner bedtime thing. And I might be all just lonely. So my goal was to get out of the house. And sometimes it was just to go to Whole Foods for something I probably didn't need, but just to have a goal. And I'd throw them in the stroller and pushing two kids or wearing one and pushing one. And inevitably... I'd meet some in my neighborhood and we'd have a few minute talk or maybe I would scrap Whole Foods and we would end up going to the tot lot, a little playground for little people. And 
it just made my day. I loved having those interactions. And that is, let alone the reason, my top reason why we stayed in New York as long as we did with kids is because I knew that if I came out to the suburbs, you don't get that quite as much. Mm. And luckily now where I live, there's actually two playgrounds in a block away from me, from us. So we still do that. But I was nervous about the isolation and you nailed it that in a, in a, place where they're, you know, in a city, you're likely going to have some sort of interaction that just acknowledges you as an adult because it can feel overwhelming if you're home alone with just a child and not using that kind and of your vocabulary <laughs> has all of a sudden shrunk into like 20 words. <laughs> and you're singing the, the wheels in the bus, like how many times you can sing that? So <laughs> I, hear, <laughs> I hear what you're saying. And those spontaneous interactions can be so rewarding. So thank you. That's a great point you made. Thank you for sharing that. Okay, we're going to take one more quick break. When we come back, what is one thing you wish someone had told you before becoming a parent? We'll be right back. Okay, we are back. So what's something now that you're on the other side, six months into on the other side, what is something you've discovered that you wish you had known before? This, now that I've touted myself as this really good researcher, this may sound really stupid, but (laughs) I wish I had heard more that the first week of breastfeeding was really going to hurt. I was, you know, we came home from the hospital and our first weekend home was, was awful. I was in such pain and my, my nipples were cracked and bleeding. You know, my daughter would spit up and there'd be blood in her spit up and I'm feeling dreadful and I know she's hungry, but the thought of having to feed her was just, I I didn't know how this was going to work. And I had heard that breastfeeding, well, if you're doing it right, it shouldn't hurt. And so it's hurting me a lot. And I'm convinced that it means I'm doing something wrong. And I, I just wish that, that more people I had talked to about breastfeeding had said, Hey, it's going to hurt. Like it, it, it will hurt the first, you know, the first week and then it gets better. And my God, does it get better? But I felt like all the breastfeeding research that I did was really kind of geared at the child, knowing how to get the proper latch for the child, knowing how to tell if your child is eating enough. Um, what are some positions? But I, I didn't know anything about how to take care of my own breasts. Um, I, I remember my husband like that after that first weekend, which was, he felt so bad because he's like, I don't know how to help in this situation at all, but bless him. He got on YouTube and, you know, he found a video about making a, um, like a little, we made a warm saline in, in a shot glass and I dunk my nipples in those, um, you and along then, with many other people. That is, I remember yeah, walking into a what? friend's house and she just was having her boobs, each one in a little, a little cup of salt water. I'm like, oh, all right then. <laughs> oh, yeah. I even, I, that's where my yoga blocks got a second life was <laughs> I put them on the floor and then put bowls of warm salt water on the bowl so that I didn't have to bend down as far to yeah. put my boobs in them. Um, and then when I got clogged ducks for the first time, <gasps> that is uh, the, Worst. Oh, it was so painful. Oh. I, I felt like I had the flu. Um, so I just, I wish that I, I had done more information or had gotten more information about how to take care of myself. 
Yeah. During that breastfeeding. Is, oh, I maybe, oh, I think you're giving me an idea for a podcast about self care for the breastfeeding parent, <gasps> not just, oh, I'm writing Do this it. down. I'm writing this down. Cause you know, of course I will I'm, listen to it. Self, I have to write this down because I literally will get off this and then start like the whole kid thing and forget self care for a breastfeeding person. Because I remember my first clogged duck, I literally, this, this is a little overdramatic, which I can be. I literally thought I was going to die. I'm like, okay, it's worse than labor because labor I knew would end and I had yes. a whole support team and this was going on and I didn't know if it would ever end. I had, my husband was helping, like we got my son on the boob. He was helping massage. I got in the shower. We did warm compresses. Mm -hmm. I got the pump out. I thought I would, and and you know, it's dramatic. I really did. I'm like, this is never going to end and I'm going to die. It was so bad. It's one of the most painful things I've ever experienced. Yeah. And I had a 42 hour labor and I still thought (gasps) that was worse. I'm like, this is the worst thing in the world. Damn. I know. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited about this new. I'm going to have to find a great lactation consultant to talk to this. Thank you for sharing that. So yeah, that is, that's a great one. And so one more question for you. Yes. What is one final tip or piece of advice you'd like to offer new or expectant parents? And it could be pregnancy related. It could be postpartum. Any little tip that you really feel like you want to throw out there? Um, Oh, 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 I've got, I've got, I've got two. Give them to me. All right. Um, all right. The first one is, uh, have, have mom friends who are older and younger. And by older and younger, I mean people who've been moms for more time than you've been a mom and people who have been a mom or will be moms for less time. It's good to have someone to give you advice. And it's so useful to have someone to give advice to because it shows you what you've learned. Um, it shows like people have different problems than your child or they had the same problem. And you're like, Oh, I thought it was only me who horribly sleep trained my daughter in month two. Um, so having someone that you can give advice to, uh, I, I had a friend from grad school, a wonderful actor friend who ended up getting pregnant pretty much exactly three months after me. So she was a trimester behind and having, having someone that I, that I could answer her questions for when I felt like I knew nothing, it was so beneficial. Um, the other thing I would say is talk to your partner about emotional energy. Mm. And I I don't know that I can give a great definition for it, but I think emotional energy is, it's it's the energy required to think about what you're going to have for dinner and then think about, all right, well, what do we already have? So, okay, that means we need to get what from the grocery store? Well, when would we go to the grocery store? It'd have to be this much time after the feeding because baby needs to be upright. It's, It's all that mental work uh, that someone does before they actually do any of the physical work associated with something. And as I think as a new mom, your capacity, your you have less emotional energy. So my husband sometimes would ask me, he's like, well, what can I do to help? And trying to think of what he could do to help was required more emotional energy than I had at that moment. So what he and I quickly learned was that just making a list of tasks where if he felt like he wanted to help at any given point, he didn't need to ask me. 
here was this list. Are there dishes that need to be done? Are there pump parts or bottles that need to be washed? Um, check, check the, the baby changing station. Are we stocked up on diapers, on wipes? Um, you know, is there laundry that needs to be done just so that the other, that on top of everything I was trying to do in those first few months, one thing I didn't have to do was direct another human being. Mm. That is really smart. And that speaks to the practical side of you, which I appreciate. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanted to thank you so, so much for sharing all of this really great wisdom and letting me learn even more about you. I love that because I've been watching you through this, this whole experience and I like knowing more about you. And I think it's so great that your journey, I think is so relatable for so many people out there. Thank you for so bravely opening up and sharing. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. Absolutely. I'll see you in class. (laughs) All right. See you on Wednesday. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening.